Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Bernard Brown to the show. Bernard Brown is the Chief Operating Officer at Empire Diversified Energy, Inc. Mr. Brown utilizes project experience to support the company's vision of bettering the planet by focusing on projects that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and enhance resource efficiency. Bernard has over 20 years of public and private experience involving project development. Mr. Brown owned and operated Sustain Energy Solutions, which was responsible for developing a series of projects in the clean energy sector. Bernard, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Raj, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today and be part of this incredible journey that you're taking us along in the energy space. Bernard, I really appreciate it. I'm looking to dig into a conversation about an item that was in the news about a month or two ago in October regarding the seven hydrogen hubs. Can you give us an overview of what exactly occurred there? I can give you the best example, uh, best knowledge that I can. Uh, Raj, the Department of Energy, along with the, the Biden administration, is looking and seeking to jumpstart the hydrogen economy in the United States. And they put out a uh, RFP uh, about a year ago, almost to the date, regarding the allocation of $7 billion to help transform and jumpstart that hydrogen economy. And what they're about, there were seven hubs selected across the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast and into the Central United States. These hubs are collaborative agreements between the government and private sector industry that will do everything from production of, of, of hydrogen, uh, the distribution, transportation of hydrogen, and even the storage of hydrogen, depending on which hubs had uh, storage capabilities, like here in the Arch 2 Appalachian Regional Hydrogen Hub. How long was this conversation in the making before the announcement, do you know? I, I can't speak on the government side, but I can speak to at least when I came here to Empire Diversified Energy. We are located along the Ohio River, and we actually own and operate the Port of West Virginia, which is, and we have road, river, and rail capabilities. But what also made us unique was across from our port, we sit, uh, we own a salt seam. And through our in discussions and investigations, we believed that our salt seam was good for either ethane storage or hydrogen. And it was almost serendipitous because as we were exploring these opportunities of alternative fuel and decarbonization here at Empire, the hydrogen hub was announced. And so their announcement was in line what we were already planning on doing. So here at Empire, I can say at a minimum of two years in the making to get us to this point. But for the Department of Energy, I'm sure it was a lot longer. 
So it sounds like there was some serendipity involved. There, there absolutely was, and, and it's. I don't know if it, it definitely wasn't by design, like we didn't <laughs> lobby the, the federal government, but it was. It was almost like a, an alignment of the stars, saying you, we were already talking about doing it. How do we do it? We were looking at some engineering. We were sourcing contracts for both the storage, and we we could talk about that later, and then the generation um, of hydrogen. And the re- one of the reasons why it was fascinating to me is I'll take you take you back to the, the old fuel cell partnership that was in West Sacramento. And it was a collaborative agreement between Toyota, Honda, and a couple of other companies. They were already trying to figure this out. It just kind of ran out of uh, funding and, and interest. But now that the technology has improved from that time period, I believe, we believe that this opportunity to inject hydrogen into the transportation market and to decarbonize ports is a very good opportunity and a good jump start and a small shift in the, to the hydrogen economy. You know, you just spurred a memory. I think it was either 2017 or 2018. I was speaking to the Trammell Crow organization here in Dallas, and it was part of the EarthX conversation that happens every year in April. And they were designing a what they called a hydrogen highway between Austin and Dallas. And um, they were working with Toyota. Toyota has the Mirai that's been in California for many, many years. And they had created or built this pizza delivery pickup truck that ran on hydrogen. And the pizza was being made. I think the partnership was one of the pizza makers, but companies, I don't want to say which one. But um, the pizza was being made in this pickup truck and was deli- was being delivered via a hydrogen-driven vehicle. Now, this was five, seven years ago. So I think they say things happen slowly at first, and then all of a sudden they happen fast. Well, Raj, you have my attention, too. My favorite things to talk about is uh, pizza <laughs> and hydrogen truck. So I'd like to see where this opportunity went uh, as far as being able to help further that along. Uh, who doesn't love pizza, and especially myself? When it comes to a, a hub, a, a hydrogen network, that's that's a very interesting discussion point, Raj, because not only are we owning and operating the Port of West Virginia, we are in talks with other ports. Uh, we now have a sister terminal, the Brookhaven Rail Facility, located on Long Island. And we're kind of on our own, again, pushing that type of network system where things could come in here to Fallensby, West Virginia, either up the Ohio River or via rail or road, and we would be able to uh, ship more goods or receive goods from one of our operating sister terminals like Brookhaven. And one of the things that we are all looking at, and it's, we're hoping it, we know there's technology emerging, but is it even the application of possibly rail options for hydrogen technology, and even hopefully one day barges, and then Part of, like you said, that highway, we're, we're helping to build that highway here at the Port of West Virginia for fuel in the hydrogen economy. So I had the pleasure of interviewing Matt DeLuc. He's the CEO of Forum Mobility about a month or two ago, um, and he's working on drayage vehicles on, I think, Los Angeles port. But can you explain how, how and why hydrogen would be beneficial for the port area? Well, as if you haven't researched or you have, the decarbonization of ports is one of the uh, focus areas for the Department of Transportation. It's one of their goals and agendas. And even though we're a private port, we're sensitive to that messaging. 
And we want to be part of that messaging for multiple reasons. One, it's part of the, our goals for environmental sustainability. But two, it's, we, it's part of that pathway that's going to move things forward. You have to be an adopter. You have to be able to say, this is a path that we can do. We're not sending trucks long across the United States. Here at the port, with the drainage trucks, trucks especially, those are what we call behind the grid assets that we can fuel and use daily. We're not dependent on having to find fueling stations uh, throughout the region or throughout the, the, the travel. If we have the ability to generate our hydrogen behind the grid and then use the hydrogen behind the grid, the opportunity to use a drayage truck that is fueled by that hydrogen is a winning solution. Now, you mentioned behind the meter, behind the grid. Sometimes people are listening, they're not sure what that is. Can you explain what that is? Sure, absolutely. That's, that's a very good, interesting question. And we actually demonstrated that to the Department of Energy during the ARCH2 interview. Behind the grid for us is we're able to utilize the hydrogen that we'll be generating here at the Port of West Virginia with our own assets, whether it's going to be transportation fuel or it's, it's uh, energy production or even ultimately to our pig iron plant that's being built in the near future. So all almost all of the hydrogen that we will be producing, Raj, is going to be spoken for behind the grid or behind the line, meaning we're not, our production will not be dependent on a market outside to buy that hydrogen. It's, it, it can be used here locally. It won't, so there won't be a greenhouse gas footprint of even transporting it. There's, there's an absolute need for, for everything that we're doing. And can you give an example of besides drayage trucks, you mentioned rail. Um, I think in a previous conversation you were mentioning Cranes, yes, cranes. Uh, there we we we, uh, we went to the brake bolt convention in Houston, and now there's even forklifts. Uh, and I believe there's a co- couple of companies that are already using forklifts. So there's the, the equipment and the the transportation assets is already starting to slowly transform or move in that direction. And so we're not going out saying build us something new that's not being done already. Therefore, we can use that equipment that someone else is already producing or generating here at the port. The other thing is uh, the, 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 the grand prize, I would say to speak, for the Port of West Virginia is the production of pig iron. And we will be ex- using hydrogen to offset a percentage of natural gas that's traditionally used in the steelmaking process. So... How was this hub received by the community of West Virginia? I, I believe good because they they understand that this is bringing a lot of jobs. Uh, there is a little bit of fear that as coal continues to be phased out in the electrical world, at least in the United States, uh, th- there is that push that they'll they'll their their jobs, their livelihoods at risk. And here, this presents an opportunity for people who work in that industry to transition to this energy industry. There are a lot of good, excellent, skilled labor forces here in West Virginia that know how to build and operate energy systems. And so the community that we've talked to thus far 
is on board. Now, you, there are some people who have questions, and rightfully so. The, you can't expect people not to have questions. And so one of the things we're doing here at Empire and along with the Department of Energy and the Arch2 is we will be having community benefit outreach meetings, helping to not only share the project, but to also educate the public on what we will be doing, how we'll be doing it, and the safety precautions we're taking to keep both the community safe and, quite frankly, the company safe. So you mentioned jobs and you mentioned safety. Are there any other conversations or challenges you found working with the community? There's always the aspect that, you know, is it going to create pollution? Is it, you know, what are the emission points? There's that aspect. And then the aspect of, is it going to increase daily truck traffic or road traffic? There's, there's, there's multiple talking points that an individual community member has. And so it's hard to address all of them. And quite frankly, sometimes you don't have answers. So you have to write them down and find a way to help get them the answers they have or that they want for those questions. Understandable. Now, my understanding regarding the $7 billion, billion for each hub, and then to activate other or alternative investments, what does that conversation look like? So that's a very good and very complicated question, Raj. I can speak for our project first. We designed our project absent government incentives. And we did that based on our previous energy development experience, knowing that a project has to be able to stand on its own two feet. Here, the government incentive de-risks the project by that percentage that it's awarded to. However, we still have to go get the balance of the financial obligation for the plant. And that's going to be done in several ways. It can be that we're looking at both debt, equity, and other tax incentives, like the investment tax credit would apply for this project also. So it goes back to, or do you want to use an ITC or do you, you want to use the proposed IRA tax incentives for hydrogen production? And, and we, we're looking at all aspects. But in the end, the, the, the incentive we used as a de-risker, Raj, not as a necessity to get this forward. The one good thing about our project is it stands on its own two feet absent this government incentive. Well, let's double click on the incentive for a moment. People, perhaps, for whatever reason, they read a headline, that's all they consume. They don't dig into the details. When they see you know, $7 billion incentive, when they see a billion dollars per hub, some might assume that the government wrote a check for a billion dollars and here you go, Bernard, off you go on your project. Um, can you give us more details into how that incentive is given yeah, out? Yeah, we're, we're going through that right now. With the So though the awards were made, each hub has to negotiate their award. And, and I'm very grateful to be part of this. It's a very thankful, but it also slows us down a little bit. And by what I mean by that is now you have to manage the award into your process. Well, sometimes that can slow down the, the, the as you know, the front-end load engineering process or in design period. So we're still spending money now on our project, pre, what we call pre-award. We're not getting that money. So we're already still expending money toward the project. And the, the award money comes in what we believe to be phases or buckets. And there's a possibility that we'll even be done with our project before the final phase or bucket. 
So there are some intricacies that you have to manage and look at with this money. And it's all part of the negotiation process, Raj. So you're not sitting there with your little finger to your cheek saying $1 billion? No, we're not. Actually, <laughs> um, we, we have internal conversations going, well, this is nice, but we have to do some of our stuff now. And so, yeah, we have to spend our own money. And then where it's going to, more than likely, this, this money is going to be more of a reimbursement type process versus uh, being able to draw down upon it as you use it. And that was the actual intent. If I, if I really look at the go back thinking about how the DOE wanted this, because one of the big things with grants is you have to spend the money first and then they, you get reimbursed. They're trying to be very sensitive and be help these companies and say, no, you can do monthly drawdowns. It's all part of the negotiation. And, and we're very, the gov- we're very appreciative that the government is, is actually trying to be a partner here, Raj, and not be, uh, slowing us up or trying to hinder us, but it's still the fact that they have policies, they have rules, they have regulations, and we we have to be respectful of that, Raj. So, regardless, we have to move forward. So, circling back to a, the previous kind of question is, we have to go expend our money, go draw down on debt, go get equity to make this project a reality. What happens if there's a change in administration next year? That's a very good question, Raj. We this we we believe we understand that this money is what they call allocated. So even if there was a change administration, that money has already been set aside for this um, project or for these these projects and the hubs themselves. What I would hope, though, if there is a change in administration, that any administration allows us, the 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 members of of all the hydrogen hubs to show them the data, the projects, that this is beneficial for the transformation of the energy economy of the United States of America. It sounds like a really big if or but, doesn't it? It, it, there, it is. And, that, and that's always a risk you have on the private sector when dealing with government integration. I would like to believe, though, that at the end of the day, this isn't about politics. It's about um, national security and energy is a national security issue. The ability to generate and deploy your own energy creates stability for your economies. When and you, you and I both know that the, the, the oil shock factors can hurt your, your, even your personal economics as, you go, as we go to the gas pump daily, that the prices can change and that can change a consumer's behavior on, okay, do I have money for the holidays this year or not? Because I have to get to work and now I'm paying $5 a gallon for that gas. Where if you have stabilized energy production and stabilized access to energy, you kind of de-risk that shock factor. And I would add to what you said, a diverse set of energy options. Correct. There is no single answer for presently that I can speak to that is going to solve all our energy problems. But if you have access to energy and you have a diversity portfolio that you can lean upon, it eases the economic shock factor when there is a change in a certain industry sector. It also creates stability in the workforce. I can see that. Now, just to give us an idea of the magnitude of just let's take your project 
What's the timeline to build out the hub? Oof, <laughs> very good question. I, for the hub itself, we you, this could be up to eight years for Arch 2, depending on some of the sizes of some of the other projects within our hub here in West Virginia uh, and in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, Eastern Ohio. Our project itself, I'll speak to that, is we would hope to be done within two years of today's date, turnkey that we're operational, generating hydrogen, and deploying hydrogen here at the Port of West Virginia. Two years? Two years. That sounds awfully fast. Well, that, and that's it is. But here is the benefit, Raj, to our projects. We are not deploying anything that's speculative or new. We've taken two known processes that are commercially readily available and combining those processes to get to the process of generating our hydrogen. Which two processes? So I'll share this with you because it's public knowledge at this point. We are using anaerobic digestion and gasification to separate the gas streams to recover the hydrogen. And can you break each one down just for those that might not be sure. familiar uh, with the, the anaerobic digestion project is taking something that would normally go to a landfill, food waste, and sludge. And as you know, those are both items that are currently used in anaerobic digestion process. So not only are we producing an RNG, we're helping to decarbonize, again, the food waste that would normally go to a landfill and the sludge that would normally be land applied to off-gas or release VOCs or even possibly PFOS. And so we take that biogas once it's created inside the digester and we send it through a series of um, gas cleanups and then it enters the gasifier. And the gasifier, I don't want to get into too many trade secrets, is designed to operate at a high temperature, low, low minimal oxygen, almost anaerobic. And from that standpoint, we separate the gases out. The, C, the carbon gases will be fed back to the system for a gen set to produce electricity to operate the system. And then the hydrogen will be taken for in use as the transportation and pig iron projects. And... Do you already have customers or offtake agreements in place? So, yes. So we have partnered with U.S. Energy, which is they used to be formerly U.S. Gains. They're going to be our downstream partner. But we're also our own offtaker, as stated before, Raj. We will be using a majority of hydrogen behind the meter, behind the grid here at the Port of West Virginia. So we are, in a sense, almost being our own customer at that point. However, U.S. Energy has the option also to to deploy remaining hydrogen to their within their commercial uh, field of customers. So it all seems pretty straightforward right now, at least while we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're both going to laugh about that because we know it's not. Nothing's ever straightforward, like turnkey, cookie cutter. I always laugh when I hear uh, people say, oh, it's a cookie cutter. We'll be able to deploy this again. I'm always like, good luck. <laughs> yeah, even cutting cookies can end up squirrely sometimes. Exactly. Um, what are perhaps a handful of challenges that you foresee, especially you know, in your role as a chief operations officer? Hazard process analysis. Uh, the HPA, uh, it goes back to, again, you're dealing with hydrogen. So the engineering and the safety and the, and the process analysis is a big challenge. You want to do this safely. You want to, you want to actually go above and beyond the code requirements. Remember, codes are typically just the minimums. Here, you want to go above and beyond. 
because when you have accidents or you have shutdowns, whatever, you start losing money instantly. And so you want to be able to safeguard that and be operational. So that's that's the first challenge. The second challenge is always going to be equipment timelines. Like you said, two years is aggressive. It is. We want to be there. So now we're up against uh, the timeline of getting equipment manufacturing in place. And we're competing against uh, what I would say major transformation here in the West Virginia Panhandle. If you didn't know, Nucor Steel's coming to West Virginia. Uh, Form Energy is opening a plant a few miles up the street from us. Now Boston Metals Group. So that the challenge of both labor and equipment is is on our forefront of like, okay, how do we get the people to build this? And then are we going to get the people, the equipment to, to build it and then obviously to operate it? So th- that's another challenge. And then the other thing is the... The financial sector, the bankers, the the risk managers, you know, getting their buy-in and their trust for this newly minted, I would say, transformational energy sector. I mean, everyone wants, to, a lot of people want to be part of it, but when you ask them to open up their checkbook and write the check to be part of it, that's a different conversation, Raj. And so I think that's going to be the, uh, the, the one of the largest challenges is getting the private industry sector money to be a very viable partner here. So I was speaking to another founder last week and she was telling me some of the struggles she's having right now in raising money because of the environment, even though there's conversations about rates staying where they are and soft landing and perhaps avoiding a recession, that things aren't going to be as dire as one's thought. But what's the environment for you right now? What's the palette out there for raising funds? I'm going to say it's a noisy market. And what I mean by that is you will get people to respond within your network, um, you, especially if you rely on previous relationships. You know, that's always important in that side of raising money. And they, they will, they'll listen. They'll let you talk to them. And then at the end of the day, they have to make a decision. It's not personal at that point. It's business. And it's them taking a risk to deploy their capital. So let's circle back to the government. Here, that is one major reason the government stepped in, because they're showing they have an all-in. They're deploying $7 billion. Of course, it's taxpayer money, but they're deploying money that could have been used elsewhere in the taxpayer system to help transform this economy. So they're signaling to the banks that if we're doing it, we're hoping you'll do it. If we do it, we're hoping you'll do it. Deploy you, your capital, yes. Right. What are some of the questions you get from the private money people when you take the government incentive to them? They want to see what the, what again, as with anything, what are the terms and conditions of of the money, uh, how you get it. They want to see if, if there's a collateral stack or, you know, some type of reach back by the government, all, all the typical... Mm risks when you do these type of projects. The other thing is they want to see, to your point, the timeline. You know, what's the distribution of capital like from that from that government incentive? So they're 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 almost the same questions if the state was giving you some type of incentive or the locality was giving you some type of incentive. That's that's the fortunate thing that I do appreciate about the banking community is they're well trained and they're well experienced on how to internalize their risks for these types of opportunities. Now, I'm not going to say that the public markets 
are an indication of markets across the board. But in the past year, there have been some challenging environments for public companies, specifically in the clean tech sector. Let's take the next era, plug power and some others that haven't done as well as people thought they would perhaps, given the time frame. How much of that are you seeing play out in some of the private markets? So that's very interesting, Raj, and I, and I can't speak to those companies. And, and quite frankly, I, I was a little bit shocked seeing some of the stocks post-award didn't increase for some of those companies. That was a very uh, head-scratcher for me. Uh, so to your question, though, is I think it comes down to do they believe in the company? Do they believe in the process, the technology, and their ability to say do what they're going to say? And one area where we're getting a little bit of better reception is because the way we set our project up, we have a very good low levelized cost of hydrogen. We're not doing electrolysis. We're not doing uh, those type of things where the levelized cost of hydrogen is still around 6 to $7. We've come in at a much lower rate. And that, that got attention, by the way, by the DOE. They, they kind of said, wait a minute, you're, you're kind of off from your other projects, <laughs> partners. And we agree, but we once we showed them our model, which I don't want to disclose here, that they they got it. They understood. We, you're receiving revenue on the front, and you're receiving revenue on the back. Therefore, your levelized cost of hydrogen production goes down. And so, we're kind of this outlier from a lot of our peers in in the hubs. And so, when you show the bankers, the investors that also that data point and that model, they've gotten a little bit more comfortable with us. And, and doing this, this this project. So there's no real sentiment across the board or hangover going on? Um, I can't speak what goes on at bars and you know, behind <laughs> closed doors at meetings, but we have not received sentiment from any partner. Uh, I, I am very, we're in very good company. We've been very supportive. Um, I would, you know, I'll give credit to Battelle and GTI and um, AST. They're there are three of the main uh, consult. Battelle is actually kind of like the quarterback of Arch 2 and uh, Allegheny Science Technology. Ariana's group has been there. They've been a very strong advocate of ours, to be honest. When people kind of scratch their heads, they helped go back and say, no, this is a good project. And when you have those type of support, that type of support, it almost becomes like Empire becomes a little engine that could, you know, because we were in some pretty tough company, some large people who have deep operating experience in the oil and gas sector, deep operating experience in uh, deployment of, of, of fuels and energy systems, and not one of them gave any sentiment. They, they clapped, they cheered for us, and a lot of them said, what do you need help with? That's good to hear. It really, it, Raj, I will be honest, this is probably one of the most refreshing times where I, it's not, it's not competitive, if, you, if I can, even if, amongst the companies there's it's all in support of each other because i think they all get it that we have to be successful we all have to win here it can't be just one person winning within the hub itself everyone within the hub needs to be a winner to make sure the people the american people say that their tax money went to the right investment so to speak so you mentioned refreshing times we take a hard right turn here You'll be, I think, coming up on your two-year anniversary here in January. What are some of the lessons you've learned about yourself besides drinking from a fire hose 
in the past <laughs> few years. Humility and humbleness is always one of the best things I've learned in this journey. And when you're given great responsibility, especially in this position I'm in, you have to be humble and you have to learn to take a knee sometimes and you have to open those ears up and shut up and listen. I, I, you, people always say people want to be heard and it's true. Sometimes they just need to be heard. And then the other thing I've learned is knowing when to lead, knowing when to stand up and put yourself out there and be able to take the vision and the goal and execute it. And I think that's one of the things I've learned the past two years is I was charged with a vision of build a hydrogen project. And I've learned we can do this with the right team, the right leadership, and the right goal settings. It's accomplishable. The other thing I've learned is you can't do everything, Raj. You can't be Superman. You've got to empower and entrust your team members and let them either succeed or see when they're failing or struggling and help them then to to reach that what they need to do. So those are kind of the lessons I've learned the past two years. Oh, and the other thing is you spend a lot of money on lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) I missed my calling. My God. (laughs) Well, let's dig into your calling just a little bit here. You have a military background. Yes. 32 years this this December between the National Guard and Reserves. How much of your military background do you lean on for your current leadership position? So there was a gentleman in my life by the name of General David Baldwin who left me with some very strong words of wisdom, good order and discipline. And that doesn't mean barking and yelling. But when you have good order and discipline, you have structure. And within that structure, you understand your left-right boundaries. And when you have a team that's operating with good order and discipline, structure, you push in that direction of success. When there's not good order and discipline and you have chaos within a project, it doesn't succeed. So to say, I I firmly believe I rely upon that that skill setting of good, good order and discipline to help drive success of projects. I like that good order and discipline. And speaking of success, let's fast forward here. Let's say it's 2033, it's 10 years from now. Fast Company, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, pick your publication, were to write a headline or perhaps even a short paragraph regarding Empire, what would you like it to read? I would like it, you know, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or Forbes, I would like to see Empire Diversified Energy as a Fortune 500, Fortune 100 uh, energy company. Uh, And and the reason why I say that is because I believe what we're doing today is replicable. And in 10 years from now, we have the ability with cooperation from communities and financing and governments to replicate what we're doing to divert food waste and sludge from the landfills to produce energy. The average person, Raj, produces four pounds of trash a day. The global population is increasing at exponential rates. And whatever fact you want to use, whether it's oil or whatever, but there is, it's known that 
our, our populations are rising. And therefore, the waste of that is linear and correlates. We have to do something, Raj. We have to do something. Now, whether we're the right answer, we are an answer. We, I believe that. So in 10 years, that paragraph's going to read our story, our journey of how we took a chance here in West Virginia and we diverted waste from landfills and created sustainable energy systems. Well, Bernard, I think that's a beautiful place to leave off. I will not forget the good order and discipline and, of course, the humility. I appreciate your time today, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Raj, it's always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.